In the fall of 1371, on a beautifully carved chair situated on fine carpets in the fields outside the city of Balak in modern-day northern Afghanistan, the 35-year-old Timur looked upon Hussein, his former brother-in-law, ally and brother-in-arms, turned bitter adversary and now his prisoner. Timur's face was a stoic mask, not revealing a hint of emotion as he pondered the fate awaiting the broken man that stood in front of him. Part of this was certainly a show, as was this facade of an open-air court proceeding that was currently being held, because Timur knew exactly what the outcome would be, or rather, what the outcome must be. And in the days leading up to this facade, Timur had prearranged everything already, fully in control of the situation. The most influential of tribal and religious leaders that bore witness to these proceedings were completely aware of their roles to play, as if being actors in this unfolding drama. None of them would dare defy the new ruler of the Chattagai Khanate. Timur, soon to be given the title of Amir Timur, Deputy and Commander-in-Chief of the Khan, an official title that would soon be orchestrated as well. Timur's cold gaze was firmly fixed on Hussein, who stood before him, defeated, eyes transfixed on the ground. How far their relationship had fallen, Timur must have thought. They had been through so much together over the last 12 years. Countless battles, being fellow fugitives, prisoners, mercenaries, and had eventually pushed the Mogulistan Khanate out of Transoxiana, freeing their homeland from occupation. But it hadn't always been a harmonious relationship. Hussein showed himself to be threatened by Timur and his capabilities and the type of ruler that always employed fear and intimidation to rule, extracting heavy tribute, always quick to remind others around him that he was the one in charge, notions that he certainly leveled at Timur as well. And when that hadn't been enough to silence Timur, Hussein also held back in their final epic battle against the Mughals, in the hopes that he would lose his life on the battlefield. That action alone, so selfish, resulted in a key battle being lost, and almost a return to the Mogulistan occupation of Transoxiana. While that hadn't worked in terms of Timur's death, it had severed a key bond between these two men, which shortly thereafter evolved into outright warfare. Two years of bitter, bitter fighting. As the surrounding tribal leaders concluded their harsh assessment of Hussein's brutal ways and poor leadership, Hussein continued to stare down at the ground, not even bothering to argue. At length, he had a chance to speak and begged for mercy to have his and the life of his sons spared, reminding Timur of their previous bonds and friendship, requesting that he and his family be allowed to leave and head on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Loud clamoring quickly arose of those around to not grant the request, calling for his execution instead. 
Timur. He raised his hand for silence and at length offered up his response, granting their quest and then getting up from his seat to head over back to his tent, a prominent limp in his step, not bothering to acknowledge the thanks offered up by Hussein. In truth, this had all been an elaborate ruse, showing himself to be a magnanimous leader in stark contrast to his defeated foe. Hussein's fate and those of his sons already being sealed, and as prearranged in the days that followed, Hussein and his sons would be killed as they began their journey to Mecca. Timur was now the authority in Transoxiana, and he left nothing to chance. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. The focus of this podcast is on people, those defined by the term warlord, fascinating warriors and leaders that made a huge impact in history, some with more lasting effects and others that were relatively short-lived, but perhaps no less interesting. That said, when I select a particular warlord, I plan to, of course, review their lifetime and actions, but also take this further by looking at the environmental and political conditions right before their lifetime. We'll explore their motivations for taking on the mantle of war. We'll cover what they did and how they did it, and finally, what their legacy was beyond their demise. But with the caveat, that I'm going to look beyond the mainstream historical figures that everyone knows about by taking on lesser-known subjects, such as the feature of this episode in part two of our continued exploration of Amir Timur, better known in the West as Tamerlane. If you haven't had a chance yet, Prior to getting into this episode, you may want to start with episode 1 to get a more detailed idea of the events leading up to where we'll be kicking off this episode from. But here's a quick summary to help refresh your memory. We looked at the social and political environment in Transoxiana before Timur's birth, including the introduction of Islam into the region, and the fragmentation and degradation of smaller Khanats that arose in the wake of Genghis Khan's great Eurasian Mongol Empire. We covered Timur's early years and rising status as a budding military leader in Emir Kazagan's court, the ruling power of the Chattagai Khanate at the time, before everything completely falling apart with Kazagan's assassination, leaving things open for the neighboring Mogulistan Khanate to invade and occupy the region, ultimately rendering Timur and Hussein Kazagan's grandson, as fugitives and on the run from the Mughals and scrambling to piece together an army of their own to eventually retake their homeland. Now, just a quick caution that there are some serious oversimplifications in that summary, so please take some time to listen to episode one because the full story is so much more rich and fascinating. All right, so with that covered, when we last left off, 
the 28-year-old teamer had recently reunited with Hussein. They were situated in southeastern Khorasan, in the mountainous, wild region, in what today would be the borderlands of Iran and Afghanistan. More importantly, out of the reach of the Mughal occupiers of their homeland, giving them some breathing space to figure out their next moves for retaking Transoxiana. It's estimated that they had roughly around 5,000 horsemen at their disposal at this point in time. Not yet at an adequate strength to take on the Mughalistan army, but still a sizable force to be reckoned with. This is exactly why the Khan of Sistan in modern-day eastern Iran reached out to them as potential mercenaries to augment their ailing forces that had found themselves unable to quell a rebellious uprising which was unfolding to become a losing war. Not confident that they were yet ready to attempt a retaking of Transoxiana, Timur and Hussein agreed to head to Sistan. In part, opportunistically thinking that there might be potential to take advantage of that scenario and establish a presence there themselves, given the precarious situation. When Timur and Hussein arrived, the Khan helped to equip their army and they wasted little time jumping into the fray. Retaking one of the seven enemy-occupied key forts in just one day, scaling and storming the walls with brutal, brutal efficiency. By the time the third fort was taken, the rebels were demoralized and ready to give up. However, on the flip side, the Khan of Sistan was growing increasingly alarmed about his newly obtained mercenaries. Obviously attributed to Timur and Hussein not relinquishing their hold of the forts and lands that they had already taken. Realizing that this force of mercenaries was quickly capable of becoming a conquering force, the Khan of Sistan might have thought that he was trading one threat for another. As a result, the Khan quickly reached terms with the rebels, adding their numbers to his troop count, and then took to the field to challenge Timur and Hussein's presence. In short order, without even realizing it, Timur and Hussein, with an estimated 4,000 horsemen remaining, were now matched against a much larger and organized Sistan army. And while en route to take the fourth rebel-held fort, whether they liked it or not, they were heading towards a pitched battle. They were vastly outnumbered, but wanting to put their foe off balance, Timur and Hussein attacked. With a furious volley of arrows, pouring them into the Sistan troops, and quickly causing havoc among their numbers, followed up by aggressive charges. Timur led this charge with the cavalry, but was gravely injured in the assault, taking arrows to the hand and the leg. While ultimately not fatal, these injuries left lasting impacts, leaving his right hand missing the little finger and the ring finger right next to it, and to his right leg, where the thigh bone merges with his kneecap, leaving him with a pronounced limp for the rest of his days. This, of course, being where the naming convention Teamer the Lame or Tamerlane came from, a less than complimentary name that for certain was not something that would have ever been said in his presence. Heavily utilized by his enemies and propagandists 
to make him seem of a lesser stock. Also, readily voiced in hostile communications with other leaders. Emphasizing his physical disabilities was an easy source of insult, although Teamer would unequivocally show throughout his career that this did very little to deter him. In such a world where martial prowess was the cornerstone of leadership, these types of injuries would have been career-ending for most. Yet somehow, Teamer was able to weather this setback, and seemingly was still able to showcase horsemanship, physical strength, and combat ability in future endeavors. Plus, his most powerful weapon, his calculating mind, was as sharp as ever. The Khan of Sistan ended up soundly defeating Timur and Hussein's army, greatly reducing their number. Yet, Timur was able to somehow miraculously crawl off, before being saved by some of his soldiers escaping the field. But he needed rest and time to recover from his injuries. Sticking around in these hostile lands would have not been a prudent measure, so he and Hussein made back to the wildlands in southeastern Khorasan. Now that certainly didn't go as planned. Their short career as mercenaries, now at an end. They stayed there for a number of months, in the dry and dusty mountainous region, regularly moving around to stay out of view and not attract any undue attention, from both the Mogulistan Khanate and now from the Khan of Sistan. After a couple of months, being mostly recovered from his wounds, they left the area aiming to rebuild their army and look for the ideal opportunity to strike at the occupying Mogulistan forces. They headed off to the city of Balak, Hussein's old stomping grounds that Timur had previously helped him to secure, setting up an encampment nearby. And they remained there for some time, during which Timur's fame acted as a magnet for soldiers and people that were increasingly becoming fed up with the brutality of the occupiers. Granted, there may have been some misgivings with Hussein returning to the area, Balak's previous overlord. While he may have been harsh and greedy, he was certainly the lesser of the two evils when compared to the Mughals. Among those seeking out Timur included some of the tribes that had deserted him when previously engaged with Haji Beg. Now, this is something that would have almost certainly not flown with Timur in future years, but at this point he was in no position to shun these prodigal allies, so Timur took a conciliatory tone and welcomed them back to his fold. But they weren't yet ready to commence a full attack. So, in the background, Timur used subversive methods, deploying some of his followers in smaller numbers out to the surrounding cities to gain intelligence on the status of his enemies. And through this, learning that the enemy had gained knowledge of their rough whereabouts. So they decided to move again, heading towards and hiding in a valley a fair distance outside of the city, on the banks of the Amudaria River. The Mogulistan army arrived at Balak, expecting to find Timur and Hussein, who'd recently taken leave of the area. Finding no one, they instead satisfied themselves with sacking Balak, which drove a number of additional refugees and warriors to Timur and Hussein's awaiting arms, helping to grow their contingent, 
now reaching about 3,000 horsemen. The problem with that, though, is that a larger group leaves a larger footprint. So Ilyas Koja sent 20,000 troops to follow the trail of those seeking refuge with Timur and approach their growing army. The 20,000 Mughal horsemen caught up with Timur and Hussein near the banks of the Amudarya. Greatly outnumbered, Timur and Hussein moved their army upriver and took possession of a passable ford, crossing it and immediately taking up a strong defensive posture that would also help to negate the enemy's numerical advantage. Confident with their superior numbers, the Mughals launched an attack, but Timur and Hussein's army unleashed volley after volley of arrows, weakening the attacker's resolve and keeping them at bay, unable to break through. Then, under the cover of night, Timur and Hussein launched a surprise counter, which caused the larger force to fall in a tangled mess and decimated a huge number of their soldiers, allowing Timur and Hussein to take their camp. This surprise victory enraged Koja, and he immediately ordered another army in the field to go in pursuit of Timur and Hussein. Timur and Hussein returned to the city of Balak and readied themselves for the next wave of Mogulistan attackers. However, they did take some time to reach out to the tribal chiefs in the area to unite with them against the occupiers, to which an additional 2,000 horsemen were added to their army. With the victory on the banks of the Amudarya and the influx of tribes joining in the rebellion, Timur and Hussein decided to not await the impending arrival of the enemy forces, but instead strike out to hopefully convert others to join in the growing rebellion. By the time the next wave of the Mughal army had neared their position, their army had reached almost 6,000 horse. Although, at some point, it seems that cracks were starting to appear with this newly established alliance. Seemingly driven by Hussein, attempting to assert his dominance over the newly joined tribal chiefs. Though Timur was able to stay the discontent, pointing to the common cause, and cooler heads eventually prevailed. Through spies and active scouting, Timur and Hussein now learned that Koja himself was personally commanding another army 20,000 strong to quell the uprising. However, more immediately pressing was an advanced force of 6,000 cavalry that would soon be arriving. Timur carved out 2,000 of his warriors and left Hussein and made out to meet the opposing advance contingent. About a day out from these two smaller armies meeting in battle, Timur then retreated. But this was a feint, attempting to get the opposing forces to lower their guard and assume a false confidence. Instead, making a forced march under cover to make a surprise assault on the larger army. As the night came on, Timur and his 2,000 horsemen fell onto the enemy's position with reckless ferocity, taking them completely by surprise and smashing into the enemy camps, slaughtering them ruthlessly. Momentum and victory led to more tribes joining in, with their total number now having reached 9,000 warriors. Mirroring the tactics they had recently used to win the previous battle, Timur and Hussein again found a passable area on the Amudarya River and took up a defensive posture, 
Shortly after this, Koja arrived with his 20,000 troops in tow on the opposite side of the river. In order to make Koja uncertain of his position and divide his forces, Timur, again under the cover of darkness, peeled off 1,000 of his troops and crossed the river, fortifying a nearby hill and ordered his contingent to light numerous campfires on Koja's side of the river. Koja took the bait and as morning broke, took a large contingent of his group and made for the hill that Timur and his 1,000 horse were situated. Koja and his army encircled the fortified hill and began the assault, but were pushed back with fierce showers of arrows from Timur and his men. This continued throughout the day with Koja unable to make any solid progress. But Timur and his men were isolated on this hill and running out of supplies and arrows. In the early morning of the following day, with few supplies at their disposal, Timur and his warriors, having spotted Koja's position, quietly came down the hill, dispelled their last few remaining arrows and charged down the hill with swords drawn. Timur and his troops carved out a path towards Koja with so much success that they were almost able to get to Koja himself. The Mogulistan commander fell back into a retreat and kept on going back towards Samarkand to recover. His army so demoralized, wondering how such a small force could have pushed back their vast numerical advantage. Certainly, a victory that bolstered Timur's image and appeal breathing further life into this rebellion to dispel the foreign occupiers. Interestingly though, Timur's bravery and decisive actions were creating lots of admiration and acclaim from those around, to the dismay of Hussein, who was officially the leader and was always taking great pains to ensure that this was raised and understood by all. This was becoming increasingly apparent as an underlying problem in their relationship. Hussein being envious and jealous of all the acclaim that Timur was bringing on. With momentum on their side, Timur and Hussein decided to press their advantage and marched their army off in pursuit of Koja. While on their way to Samarkand, reports came in that Tugulu, the Mughal Khan, had died, appointing his son Elias Koja as his heir and successor. As a result, Koja was forced to return to Mogulistan to pay his respects to his father and more importantly, be crowned as Khan. Before doing so, he left a sizable force back in Samarkand to dissuade the rebels from making further headway in his absence. With the success that Timur and Hussein had recently experienced and the growing distaste that the Chatakai people held for the Mughals, this caused a large attrition of forces to go over to Timur and Hussein's side. The Mughal troops remaining in Samarkand were tense and nervous, aware of the changing winds and their precarious spot, and with fewer and fewer local allies to call on, not to mention that their Khan was now far away back in Mogulistan. In order to make the defenders further disillusioned, Timur commanded his group to engage in psychological warfare, ordering his men to cut down trees that would be dragged by the horses. Why, you ask? This action raised immense clouds of dust in several directions, 
creating the illusion of a massive force descending upon the city. The Mughal forces in Samarkand, seeing vast clouds of dust arising in the distance, fearing the impending doom of a vast army approaching, lost their nerve and opted for flight, fleeing the city, allowing Timur and Hussein to enter Samarkand, a triumphant return being hailed as liberators, followed again by an influx of tribal leaders joining in with Timur and Hussein, determined to be on what was increasingly looking like the winning side. Hussein, now newly minted as Amir Hussein, began consolidating his seat of power, making sure to quell any remaining resistance and persuading any independent-minded tribal leaders to put any such silly notions aside and join under his banner, making it clear what would happen to any of those that resisted. Despite this, there was lots of murmuring among the tribal leaders in Transoxiana that Timur was in fact the true source of victory and liberation, a notion that may have in fact been propelled by Timur himself vying for the leadership role that he craved. On the opposing side were other voices being raised, attempting to undermine Timur's actions and the role he played in this liberation and put aside any discussions as him being the next potential sovereign in the region. With Hussein, by proxy, primarily driving this chatter, pointing to the fact that Timur was not a descendant of the imperial family, not being of Genghis Khan's lineage, and with Hussein being the only real option at hand. Despite all the underlying intrigue, for the time being at least, Transoxiana was freed from its Mughal overlords. This, however, was to be a short reprieve. In the spring of 1366, Koja fielded yet another army, this time 30,000 strong, intent on retaking Transoxiana. Although their army count was roughly half of that of the Mughal troops, Timur and Hussein decided to head out and face them head-on, so they could dispel any future invasions once and for all. They marched 300 kilometers due east from Samarkand to an area near the Kujand River, where they found the newly crowned Mogulistan Khan, Elias Koja, and his forces equally keen to see this through. The two armies faced off, Hussein commanding the right and center, with Timur in charge of the left wing. With superior numbers, Koja initiated the conflict and commanded a fierce charge into the right wing that was under Hussein's eye, a stinging attack that had the right reeling and pushing them back. Koja had taken note of the potential for the right wing to collapse, so he sent another wave to reinforce the attack. Learning of the dire situation and the potential of the right wing to collapse completely, Timur personally led a detachment from the left wing into the fray, pushing back the Mughals and soon routing them. With the battle momentum on their side, Timur knew that this was the time to press their advantage and advised Hussein to counter. Hussein agreed, commanding Timur to take both the left wing and center forces to engage the enemy, concentrating on the center where Koja's standard had been spotted. The two armies smashed into each other, arrows filling the air followed by swords drawn in fierce charges. 
Koja's army held but was fading, presenting a prime opportunity to finish off the Mughal Khan once and for all. In order to do this, Timur sent a request back to where he had left Hussein, requesting him to rally his forces and flank the Mughal force, giving them no chance of escape. But Hussein held back, telling the messenger that he was not in a state of readiness to re-engage. Upon hearing this, Timur was exasperated and again sent a messenger, strongly imploring Hussein to engage and join. But Hussein, not taking to the command of an underling kindly, reportedly struck the messenger and said something resembling, Tell Timur to be patient until I can reunite my broken troops. Although Timur had Koja and his forces on their heels, continuing the battle at that point would have costly depleted his forces without the addition of Hussein's troops to attack from the rear. Timur would later come to believe that this hesitation was in fact purposeful, with Hussein hoping that Timur would be killed while keeping this attack going. Whether true or not, this was a defining moment for Timur, severing one of the bonds between the two men, one that Timur would never, ever forget. Timur held their position, but were unable to press on further, allowing Koja and his disorganized but still intact army to retreat without being harassed. Just before night fell, Hussein then sent a messenger back up to the front lines, advising that he was now ready to engage. But by then the opportunity had been lost, as the given time had allowed the Mughals to reorganize their lines. As the next morning dawned, the armies were again positioned across from one another, war drums beating and poised for action. A heavy rainstorm swept across the battlefield, turning the ground into a dismal, heavy mud underfoot the horses. Despite this, Hussein commanded Timur to advance towards the Mughals. Timur and a force of 2,000 horsemen behind him smashed into their first ranks, initially pushing them back, but the Mughals then threw a second line into the mix, holding Timur at bay. The battle lasted all day in the murky and slick ground, and while Timur had caused stress on the Mughal force, it had costed him dearly, losing over half of his men in the effort. As the second day of battle ended, Timur surveyed his troops, finding that they were completely exhausted and depleted, and appealed to Hussein to relinquish the battle. Knowing that continuing the fight at this point could prove fatal, Granted, the eastern invaders also appeared to have no appetite to continue for now, having also experienced equally heavy losses. Hussein agreed and made the decision to retreat back to Samarkand, giving the bedraggled army an opportunity to rest, while also replacing their lost numbers in order to be in a state of readiness. Although Koja had technically won the battle, his army had been sufficiently weakened, so much that it couldn't really be considered an occupational force. So for a time, they satisfied themselves with plundering the region before heading back to Mogulistan. Part of this decision may have had to do with him being relatively new to his deceased father's throne in Mogulistan, necessitating that he be back in his home region to prevent any other pretenders to the role of Khan. Which was just as well for Hussein and Timur, who 
by this point were unable to piece together a coordinated effort to oust the army turned raiders of their region. Symptomatic of the widening rift between these two allies, driven by Hussein's jealousy of Timur's martial prowess and appeal amongst the tribes, and on the figurative campaign trail reminding all in the region of Timur's role as his lackey and as someone without a legitimate ancestral claim to any position of power. During this time, Timur and Hussein did exchange some correspondence, but it was becoming abundantly clear that reconciliation was going to be an unlikely outcome. Granted, they were still both intertwined as allies, at least for the time being. Over the winter, though, Hussein used this time to sink his claws into the city, using this time to appoint those loyal to him to his court and important administrative positions, appointing tax collectors to extort money from the inhabitants of the city, his greed also making him many enemies within, while also actively demanding shows of fealty in the forms of gifts and tribute from the surrounding tribal chieftains, including Timur. Beyond the obvious insult that came along with this, given how instrumental his role had been in helping to install Hussein as a leader in Transoxiana, there was a wee bit of a problem with this for Timur, because he was essentially broke. But he did manage to come up with an interesting solution. Timur gathered what he could, but the showpieces sent were his wife's family jewelry, which Hussein would have been familiar with because she was his sister. This may have in fact been a calculated insult to shame Hussein for his greedy ways, showing everyone in his court the extent to which their current ruler would go to peel riches away from those that supported him, even at the expense of his own family. Accompanying this tribute, Timur also sent a letter to Hussein asking him to rethink his course of action, especially to reconsider how he was treating the inhabitants of the city, particularly those that were loyal to Timur. Hussein paid these communications with no consideration, and in fact was actively working to convince those loyal to Timur to change their affiliation. Granted, convince is probably the nice way of putting it. It's probably more in the terms of threaten. Eventually, though, Timur's spies uncovered what was happening in the city. In the spring of 1368, Timur's wife, who was also Hussein's sister, died after having fallen ill over the course of the winter, impacting both Timur and Hussein profoundly. And really, this could have gone two ways, potentially bringing these two men together over the shared loss, or splitting them further apart with the elimination of the marital bond between the two families. And, as I'm sure you can guess by now, this definitely landed in the latter camp. Although, it didn't initially appear that way. Hussein used this occasion to reach out to Timur, requesting that they meet in person to discuss their differences and at least attempt to reach an agreement, leaving their troops behind, only accompanied by a small entourage. Timur agreed, and made for the meeting spot, in an unpopulated hillside pass somewhere between Samarkand and Kesh. But he was cautious, fully understanding the slippery nature of his adversary. 
Timur wisely sent out small detachments of his army the night prior to take up strategic positions in case they were needed, but remaining hidden from view. He then proceeded with 300 horsemen behind him and arrived at the agreed-upon meeting site, also selecting a portion of the pass that offered strategic advantages in case he needed to launch a counter-ambush. Whereas, Amir Hussein arrived with 1,000 horsemen at his back, not to talk and reach terms, but fully intending on silencing Timur once and for all. Hussein waited at one side of the pass and commanded his horsemen to go forth and bring the nuisance, Timur, back to him, dead or alive. Despite having scouted the area, no threats were perceived by the emir's troops, so they advanced into the valley. As soon as Timur came into view, Hussein's troops charged out towards him. However, Timur's force then roared out in response to the aid of their leader, with Timur's hidden horsemen also jumping into the mix. As Hussein impatiently waited for news of their success and Timur's capture, instead, what greeted him was a small remaining portion of his 1,000 horsemen, galloping wildly in retreat and with Timur's horsemen in pursuit. It didn't take long for Hussein to realize that his ruse had backfired terribly, and he wheeled around and rushed back to Samarkand as quickly as he could. The last remaining tie between these former brothers-in-arms now severed. If he hadn't been convinced of it by now, Timur was now certain beyond the shadow of a doubt that this could only end with Hussein's death. One kind of important problem was immediately apparent. He didn't have adequate forces to take on Hussein's much larger army head-on. Timur rushed back to Kesh, gathered his family, army, and the tribe still loyal to him, and vanished into the Transoxiana steppe. But not in retreat, rather setting up a mobile headquarters. Because... Although Timur was not ready to take Hussein's forces head-on, he was already set on how he would fight this war. Subversion, intelligence, and guerrilla warfare. But he had to settle some things amongst his group first. Over the last years, considering all the intrigue, envoys, letters, there had been a number of tribal leaders changing sides time and time again. And Timur wanted to avoid any potential attrition of his troops, so he completed a review of his army and asked them to swear loyalty to him, promising that in turn he would consider them to be brothers, and that, as brothers, he would share spoils and plunder with them, knowing that this was in stark contrast to how Hussein operated. Over the next roughly two years, Timur and Hussein were locked into a war for control of the region. Initially best characterized as a series of smaller skirmishes between Hussein and Timur. Now, as we established before, Timur had a smaller number of forces, but he actually ended up winning most of the engagements. Hussein himself never physically taking part and instead sending generals to do the work on his behalf. Timur secured victory after victory largely through strategic ambushes including a heavy reliance on night attacks, like stinging hornets appearing when not expected, waging an extensive guerrilla warfare campaign informed by an intelligence network that also included people in 
or close to Hussein's inner council. Being on the losing end of the vast majority of these engagements, Hussein's anger and brutal ways were inflamed, admonishing his subjects at their ineptitude and causing more attrition of his army into Timur's arms. And while this certainly explains some of the attrition, part of this must have had to do with the tribal leaders also increasingly seeing the winds of change, and they were determined to be on the winning side. By mid-1370, Timur's ranks were sufficiently strengthened, whereas Hussein's sufficiently weakened, so much that Timur was finally ready for a final assault on Hussein's base of power in Balak. In months prior, Hussein had left Samarkand and taken up residence in Balak because he was really concerned for his safety. Transoxiana was where Timur had grown up and had allies, and had recently won a number of victories. So, of course, being concerned for his safety, he left. But Timur went after him. Timur entered into Hussein's territory and began systematically taking over his lands, towns, and cities one by one. Most of the governors readily changing over to Timur's banner and handing over these territories without bloodshed, being fed up with Hussein's rule and, and eager now, seeing a key opportunity to cast him down. As Timur inevitably neared the city of Balak, Hussein finally left the protection of the city walls, determined to meet Timur in the field. Timur ordered his son Omar Sheikh to immediately charge in and crush Hussein's troops, which they did with terrifying speed and efficiency. Witnessing the epic collapse of his army all around him, Hussein, dismayed, immediately turned around and shut himself into the city, securing himself in the citadel. But Timur continued his relentless pursuit and ordered his son to take the assault in to the walls of the city, who, despite receiving an arrow to the foot, continued the courageous attack winning praise from Timur and the troops under his command. The following day, Timur continued an all-out assault on the city, resulting in a large number of casualties on both sides. However, the city was still in Hussein's hands. By the end of this hard-fought day, though, Hussein was at a loss. Looking on, he stood out on the battlements, surveying the vast array of troops that Timur still had in formation surrounding the city, and he knew the city was lost. So he sent a letter to Timur through his eldest son, proposing an end to hostilities. That is, if Timur would let him leave and go on a pilgrimage to Mecca. Despite Timur's agreement and assurances of safe passage, Hussein instead attempted to disguise himself and hide in the minarets of one of the mosques in the city but was soon found and brought to Timur. Thus, bringing us to the story that we covered at the top end of this episode. A mockery of a trial was held outside the city of Balak, wherein countless chiefs spoke in repudiation of Hussein's heinous actions and behavior, calling out for his death. Timur, in the end, did not agree, and allowed Hussein to uptake his pilgrimage. As historical references read, however, not all the chiefs agreed with Timur's decision, and they ended up taking matters into their own hands, slaying both Hussein and all his sons, 
ending this threat to Timur's rise. In my opinion, though, considering how beneficial this was for Timur, and really, given what we've learned about this enigmatic and ruthless warrior, I'm convinced that Hussein's death was in fact ordered by Timur himself. Allowing Hussein and his sons to go free would have likely resulted in a future continuance of this war and a risk to Timur's hold on rulership. Timur was not the type of person to allow for any loose ends, especially those that could come back to bite him. Plus, there were other advantages, particularly Hussein's wife, more specifically her ancestry, but we'll get back to this in a little bit. Days later, with Hussein now permanently removed out of the picture, another meeting was being held outside of the city. This time, though, it wasn't a mock trial, but it was another carefully choreographed performance. With all the most powerful and influential tribal chiefs and religious leaders in attendance to decide who would be installed as the next leader of the Chattagai Khanat. The session began with several tribal chiefs voicing different suggestions, people that held tenuous hereditary claims that were more divisive in nature and sure not to be universally accepted amongst the tribes. Eventually, Cutting through the ensuing clamor were other and more numerous voices that just so happened to also be the most powerful of the tribal chiefs, pointing to Prince Suyorgatamish as the Khan, who held the necessary ancestral stock, and recognizing Amir Timur as his deputy and commander-in-chief, a configuration that had to have been engineered by Timur in doing so, respecting the traditions of the land, and careful not to be seen as a tyrant, like the outgoing Hussein. Regardless, all those present came to understand who the real power in Transoxiana now was. And if it wasn't clear to them just then, it became crystal clear in the day that followed, with all the leaders and tribal chiefs present meeting with Timur and swearing complete and utter obedience to the new commander-in-chief. As I alluded to a little earlier, with Hussein out of the picture, in order to further enhance his legitimacy to rule, Timur also married Hussein's widow, Saray Mulk Kunum. Why, you may ask, is this so important? Well, it's because she was a descendant of Genghis Khan. Getting Timur closer to that notion of legitimacy that he was so desperately seeking this marriage allowing him to style himself as Amir Timur Gurgen, Gurgen meaning son-in-law of the great Khan. One of the many puzzle pieces that Timur used to insulate his claim of rulership. This additional step helped to reinforce Timur being a valid candidate to the role of deputy and commander-in-chief, and alleviating the questions surrounding his right to rule since he didn't have that direct ancestral linkage himself. As with the title of Khan, Timur similarly could not claim the supreme title of the Islamic world, that being Caliph. Because, according to the Shia, this required an ancestral linkage to the Prophet Muhammad. And according to Sunni scholars, this required a linkage to the Quraysh, the tribe of the Prophet Muhammad and Timur possessed neither of these things. But he did come up with a solution to solve this riddle too, 
Granted, this solution wasn't as clean and came with a great deal of PR spin. Timur created an image of himself as a divine power ordained by God, messaging that was also echoed by some of the top religious leaders in the region, with Timur being recognized as the sword of Islam. Being that Timur had such a successful career as a conqueror, it was easy to justify his rule as being ordained and favored by God. And really, this notion wouldn't have seemed that unbelievable to fellow Islamic people in the area, being that this sentiment of military and political success being the result of God's favor had long been successfully used by earlier rulers. So here we are. In 1371, at 35 years of age, Amir Timur was now the undisputed leader of Transoxiana and set himself up in Samarkand. In the next episode, we'll learn about what Amir Timur does now as the newly installed supreme ruler in Transoxiana, marking the very beginning of an astounding 35-year run of almost constant warfare and conquest. And we'll get to meet Toktamish, a nomadic warrior and future leader of the Golden Horde that Timur takes under his wing in a relationship that can be best described as a father and son, but that in time will degrade with Toktamish becoming one of Timur's greatest adversaries, risking to topple the very heart of his kingdom. And we'll also travel to Persia, where we'll learn about Timur's spectacular achievements there, seizing vast lands to greatly enhance the power and prestige of the growing Timurid Empire, but also where Timur begins to exhibit his notable dark side, ordering horrific acts to those that dare to defy his authority, resorting to brutal violence to force nations to submit to his will. And much, much more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. I would certainly appreciate a five-star rating if you found this episode informative or entertaining. And lastly, you can head over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some supplementary info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where, if you are so inclined, you can also sponsor the show directly, with 10% of monthly listener contributions going towards charitable causes namely providing equipment, resources, and training towards sustainable agricultural practices in developing countries. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music by audionautics.com. <laughs>